0: What about the accusations against Palamas as a Messalian? Let's say a few words about this. These are interesting because, among other things, this is still at least a suspicion that Western Christians often have vis-à-vis Orthodox spirituality in general. Many in the West, to this day, regard for instance the macarian homilies as either the product of a messalian perhaps a certain simian of mesopotamia or as containing not a few messalian elements both views are totally rejected by the orthodox tradition of course for whom the macarian homilies are a veritable staple of the spiritual life, especially for monks, our specialists, and are unquestionably inspired by the Holy Spirit. Gregoras, in his explicit complaints about Palamas and the hesychasts in general, in his history, accuses St. Gregory of holding Messalian doctrines it's interesting that there are no criticisms of Palomas's doctrine in the first draft of Gregoras's history. He adds these later. When Balaam had started saying such things, Gregoras remained <coughs> silent. Now, this accusation, explicitly against Palamas and the hesychasts, had been leveled against them by the philosopher-monk Balaam the Calabrian some years earlier, in his second book that he wrote against them in 1338, which bore the title Gadamasalianon, Against the Messalians. The first book, by the way, was rather vague and did not refer to specific persons, whereas later Balaam changes his tactics, accuses them of Messalianism, and names St. Gregory Palamas. As a Messalian. So, what is Messalianism? And who are the Messalians? This is a, a semi Gnostic system, more or less dualist, of the fourth century originally. It first appeared in Mesopotamia, and within only a few decades, spread throughout the Roman Empire and beyond. The characteristics of this system, originally a monarchic system, first, uh, they're described as Ukites, men of prayer. Massalians means those who pray. In the Semitic family of languages, Massal means prayer. They were proponents of continuous or unceasing prayer, but under certain specific circumstances. Secondly, they believed that within every man resides a demon. Within every person, Satan has taken root, and he must be expelled. And Satan is expelled through grace. And how is grace acquired? How does grace come into the soul of man, according to the Messalians? Through continuous or unceasing prayer. So grace comes through unceasing prayer, which wars against Satan and expels the demon and dispels sin. Thirdly, the Messalians believed that they could sense the presence of the Holy Spirit within them consciously. It's interesting because St. Simeon, the new theologian, if you remember, he had written against those who think that they have the presence of the Holy Spirit in them unconsciously or insensibly and mystically. mysticos. So, mystically and insensibly, without without sensing the presence of the Holy Spirit, the Messalians believed that they could sense the presence of the Holy Spirit within them, consciously, that they were consciously aware of the Spirit, Acting and moving within them. And they believed that they could see God with their physical eyes. Now, as we read through these points of what the Messalians believed, it's very easy to think, well, yeah, isn't this what we have in the Orthodox tradition, in the Hesychast? Tradition, Seeing God with your physical eyes. Isn't that something we believe? Yeah. They also believed that they could know the future, by the way. That they had the gift of prophecy. They were against ownership of property, possessions of any kind, and against work for the purpose of the acquisition of property and things. They did not work. So how did they survive? How did they live? Through begging. They begged. They did not work. But curiously, they depended on the work and almsgiving of others. And there's an interesting saying attributed to Abba Lucius. In the sayings of the Desert Fathers, the Apophthegmata Patrum, Abelusius is a desert father from the end of the fourth century, who gives us a refreshingly practical way to pray without ceasing. And one day he's visited by a group of Yukites Ephide. The Salians. And this is what the saying says. I'll just read it briefly to you. Some of the monks who are called Eukites went to Enaton, Enaton is a place, to see Abelusius. The old man asked them, what is your manual work? They said, we do not touch manual work, but as the apostle says, we pray without ceasing. The old man asked them if they did not eat, and they replied, they did. So he said to them, when you are eating, who prays for you then? Again, he asked them if they did not sleep, and they replied, they did. And he said to them, when you are asleep, who prays for you then? They could not find any answer to give him. He said to them, Forgive me, but you do not act as you speak. I will show you how, while doing my manual work, I pray without interruption. And he goes on to explain what he does. I sit down with God Soaking my reeds and plaiting my ropes, and I say, God have mercy on me, according to your great goodness and according to the multitude of your mercies, save me from my sins. So he asked them if this were not prayer, and they replied, It was. Then he said to them, So, when I have spent the whole day working and praying, making 13 pieces of money. I put two pieces of money outside the door, meaning he leaves it for almsgiving, and I pay for my food with the rest of the money. He who takes the two pieces of money prays for me when I am eating and when I am sleeping. So by the grace of God... I fulfill the precept to pray without ceasing. And so Abba Lucius is speaking to them on a very basic, simple, refreshingly simple level to show them that what they believe is not quite the case. They don't know about the prayer of the heart. This is not part of their their culture. The Messalians would travel from place to place. They were, if you like, they were the kind of hippies of, of their time. Men and women, usually in couples but also in groups, would go from place to place together and sleep wherever they could. And they had a method. For three years, they would remain chaste. And after the three years were up, not only would they no longer be chaste, but they would be deliberately unchaste in all things. And this because they had reached perfection and so no sin could touch them. They were against the hierarchy and the priesthood. They were also against the mysteries of the church, the sacraments. They believed that the demon which was substantially united to the soul, could not be expelled by baptism. That's why they had to pray unceasingly. And another basic characteristic of the Messalians was that they did not accept the veneration of icons. They were iconoclasts. These were the Messalians of the 4th, 5th, and 6th centuries. So, who were the Messalians of the 14th century? Well, in the 14th century, it was the Bogomils that were referred to as Messalians. The Christians of the Roman Empire, they had the habit of calling people by ancient names. They called the Bogomils Messalians, Bogomil. This was a, a Bulgarian heresy which arrived in Bulgaria via the Manicheans of the 8th century. In the 8th century, a large number of Paulicians were settled in Thrace and then uh, spread to the eastern provinces of the Roman Empire. Bogomil may mean Ukite, or some interpret this as the Bulgarian for Theophilos, beloved of God, supposedly the name of their founder. Anyway, because they had the same characteristics, the Bogomils with the Messalians, At least on certain key points, on unceasing prayer and on the vision of God, that is why Orthodox theologians often referred to the Bogomils as Massalians, Massaliani. We had said that both Balaam and Gregoras accused the Hesychasts of being Massalians. Gregory Akindinus, writing to Iakovos Kukunaris says that a certain George lived in Thessalonica with Isidore Boucheras, the later patriarch. Isidore was the first Hesychast patriarch of Constantinople, and Echindinus says that they were discovered or found out to be Messalians and forced to live in Thessalonica. Later we have an account by Gregoras according to which perhaps around 1346 Messalians were found on Mount Athos. One of them a certain George of Larissa or Lariseos was publicly ridiculed and Gregoras says That they were expelled from Mount Athos and that Palamas was one of them, but that he left earlier and thus escaped being found out and being condemned along with them. Now, later, at the Council of 1351, Gregoras brought the charge against the Hesychasts as iconoclasts and stopped short of accusing them of being. Massalians. But why do Gregoras and the others accuse the hesychasts of Massalianism? Uh, by the way, Philotheus Gokinos, in his biography of Palamas, in order to make it abundantly clear that Palamas was in no way a Massalian, relates that when Gregory first left Constantinople to embark upon the monastic life, he reached Mount Papikion, where there were Messalians. And not only did Palamas not join the Messalians, but, says Philotheos, the Messalians even made an attempt on his life. Obviously, you can see Philotheos going to lengths here to stress that Palamas was not to be regarded as messalian but why are palamas and the hesychasts accused of messalianism number one is the fact that the hesychasts were proponents of unceasing prayer not in the messalian context the hesychasts believed that you must always have the memory of god in your every act and in your every thought. We'll come back to that point. Number two, some Hesychasts also employed a method of prayer. This method was described by St. Gregory the Sinite in a small treatise entitled, Bos the di Energy How to Activate the Prayer. And this is a method for the prayer, which certainly has external characteristics. It involves the body, the physical aspect of the human being. And so the anti-hesychasts regarded the hesychasts as having this physical aspect to their life of prayer. Mayendorf refers to this as a form of yoga and although there are certain similarities this is definitely not yoga when we make prostrations for example we we exert ourselves we show that coming into contact with god involves an effort and a certain pain. This may sound like a minor point, but it is in fact very important indeed. Once upon a time, I was at the monastery of St. John the Baptist, and in the chapel of St. John the Baptist, we were gathered there in prayer for a service, and in came a certain man wrapped in a an orange uh, cloak, and he proceeded to walk to the center of the, of the chapel. It was very small, so it was near to everyone. And he sat in the middle, cross-legged, in the middle of the, the church and assumed the uh, typical posture of meditation. And then I just had this gut reaction to that there was something wrong but i couldn't i couldn't put my finger on it i couldn't say why what well, you know we were seated and some people were standing some people were sitting uh, you know he was he was cross-legged he was dressed in a different uh, clothing but all right you know shaved head and all of that but a human being in the lotus position well uh this point about yoga meditation, and so forth. When we stand in prayer before God, the orthodox posture, the orthodox stance, is not one of relaxation. You don't relax and allow the life force, whatever, however you like to describe it, Um, There's there's an intensity. We are still, but that stillness is a superabundance of intensity, of activity. We are engaged. We don't empty ourselves and leave it there. We fill ourselves with the name of Christ. Jesus Christ. It's important for us to understand this. And I think, by the grace of God, I have a glimpse into this because of serving in the altar with Father Sophroni. The intensity, the presence of Father Sophroni in prayer, liturgical prayer, it's intense, it's focused, it has one thought very strongly in mind. And so it cannot be a yoga. It cannot be a meditation. Anyone who has practiced, even to a very limited degree, any of these so-called techniques and methods will understand this immediately. We're speaking of two fundamentally different worlds. Sometimes a technique is used with regard to novices, recommended and used by novices, and it may help them for a time. It doesn't constitute the prayer, whether it's the, uh, what we just mentioned, whether it's on the question of technique and method, whether it's the spiritual exercises of Loyola or whether it's the contemplative prayer of some modern Roman Catholic spiritual advisors, we're speaking of two fundamentally different worlds. And we said, what you do physically affects you spiritually. And what you do spiritually affects you physically. There is a culture and an ethos contained in every thought, in every movement. Palamas does not accept a psychosomatic method. And he simply says that if beginners, the praktiki, wish to use it, let them use it. But it's not necessary for the theoretiki monarchy the contemplative monks, those monks who are advanced. The more experienced monks don't need it. It would hold them back. Not only would it hold them back, but ultimately it would lead to some form of spiritual illness. The latter concentrate their mind by their will alone. The hesychasts speak of literally the rolling up of the nous, concentration of the nous. So we do not have messalianism in hesychasm, nor do we find it in Gregory the Sinai, even with his recommendation of the physical technique for beginners in saying The Jesus Prayer. But there was another accusation leveled against the Hesychasts that the Hesychasts claimed to experience the vision of God, something that the Messalians also claimed. Now, the Messalians also claimed to see God and indeed by means of their physical senses. But Palamas and the Hesychasts, when they speak of the vision of God, they do not mean the same thing as the Messalians. The Hesychasts regarded the vision of God as something abundantly attested to in Holy Scripture. One of the passages that they like to remind themselves of is where the psalmist says, my heart and my flesh have exalted in the living God. Which means, of course, that not only does the heart participate in God, but so too does the flesh. And in this case, flesh refers to the human body. And this line of thought can be found as far back as Diaticus of Photicae, who stressed in the mid-5th century the importance of the body's participation in God. It's not only the because of Photiki, by the way. It goes much further back than that. But the participation of man's physical powers, that they are refined, that they are ennobled, and reach a certain immaterial state a certain spiritual state. Palamas too emphasizes that the Christian's experience of God, which comes as a result of the fervor of prayer, is transformed into light. And he says that that light is real, but it is not a sensible light. It is not a physical light but neither is it a light that allows the vision of God in his essence. So, the grace of prayer is transformed into light. The light is real, but it's not a sensible light, even when it is perceived by the eyes of the body. You see, the difference between Palamas and the Messalians is that the vision of God for the Messalians is both a sensible light and it is a vision of God in his essence. Palamas says neither. Only when your body, when your Physical senses are transformed. Can you see God? Can you hear God? And so forth. Can you experience God? By itself, the physical sense of sight is not capable of seeing God. We said before that the nush, the nush, the eye of the soul cannot see God unless it is Transformed by the grace of God and enabled given the capacity to experience God so Balaam had previously insisted that the three disciples on Tabor saw the symbol of divinity the symbol of the Godhead and Palamas replied that this was wrong they saw his divinity, but not God in his essence. They saw God's energy, God's divine grace, the essential energy of God, but not God's essence. And so Palamas makes this distinction and is so doing, is completely free. Of any suspicion of Messalianism. And there's one more point about the uh, accusation of the Hesychasts as Messalians, and that has to do with icons, which we shall turn to next time.